All right, what's going on, guys? Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, I have got Broderick Chavez. He's back again for the second uh, time to talk about anabolic steroids for physique and athletic performance. Uh, this is something that I think is really, really interesting, especially because it's such a taboo topic that no one really wants to talk about it because they don't really want to kind of be associated with that sort of stuff. There's this kind of like negative connotation almost. And because of that, there's a lot of really bad information out there and Broderick is, is one of those guys who's so experienced, so smart, and so well-educated in, in this field that he's got a lot of really, really great insights um, that I think a lot of people are going to find interesting, just even intellectually, if you have no desire to use drugs. Um, and if you do, you know, he can, he can potentially help you do it in a much more effective way. So Broderick, first off, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, can you share a little bit about yourself for, for maybe those who, who haven't listened to the first podcast or who aren't necessarily aware of you? Sure. First of all, thanks. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm really, really excited to be here. Uh, second, you know, when you listed, you know, you know, the intellectual and the educational and all that, I think the thing you really left out is I'm the asshole dumb enough to say this shit out loud. That, that is the kind of the unspoken, you know, about to be spoken part. Um, I think there's a lot of guys, you know, floating around the globe with my level of knowledge and experience that, are just a little bit more, uh, you know, socially conservative and just don't, you know, blurt out the crazy shit that I will and do. So I, I do, you know, I, I do think that puts me in a unique, maybe not necessarily always positive position, but it does put me in a unique position. But um, really quick, I, I hate talking about myself, but really quick, um, I just had a birthday. I turned 49 years old. Um, oh, happy birthday. I walked into a commercial gym for the very first time, by the way, which was not the beginning of my training career, but the first time I walked into a commercial gym was Christmas Day, 1981. So I have been doing this a very, very long time. That was just after my 10th birthday. So I have been in commercial gyms for you know, 40 years at this point. Um, been involved in, almost immediately got an immersion in very high-level athletics. Uh, the gym I started training at just by coincidence uh, was a very, very high-level Olympic lifting gym, something which I never excelled at, had no gifts for, but it gave me a very immersive, immediate step into not just you know, fitness, but training for athletics, what it took, what was required, the mindset, the attitude, um, the, the reality of pharmacology was there immediately. It wasn't something that, you know, kind of was hidden away. It was very o overt and immediate, uh, partly because of the geography, partly because of the time, a, a number of things. But nonetheless, I got a very unique education that other people wouldn't. Um, I also had more than a little bit of physical gifts. Um, initially, more in the bodybuilding realm, uh, progressed very quickly, was recognized very quickly, and because of that, I was able to rub shoulders with names like Dr. Fred Hatfield, Tom Platts, uh, Tom Dieters, who was the uh, editor of Muscle and Fitness at that era. Um, some real, real, uh, Lambert from Powerlifting USA, some really high level people. Uh, and the, the beauty of that is, is you know, having some gifts and then being around gifted people, you kind of take up the habits of them, which was, gather education, work really hard, do these sorts of things. So all of that wound up, led me to uh, University of Arizona where I collected a, a BS in biology, minor in chemistry. Um, the educational part is valuable, valid. It's a good 
calling card. It's a good uh, ticket to trade on. But the reality is what really advanced my abilities to do my job and even as an athlete was that time at University of Arizona where um, I, I was on paper nothing but a student, but in reality, I was very, very immersed in the human performance lab and the actual everyday working with athletes. The diagnostics, you know, body fat percentages, VO2 maxes, um, lactate threshold tests, that sort of stuff at a very early age to realize that that's the level of analytics needed to advance athletes. And so I, I kind of took a funny trip, you know, trip through all this. Uh, turns out I wasn't something. I don't think it was physically, but something about me didn't wind up going the full world-class, you know, powerlifter route. I had all the tools, but for some reason just didn't. And I kind of diverted most of my energies more into the intellectual coaching and uh, exploration side of things. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's super cool that uh, I mean you got to train with some of those really really big names, right? Because a lot of the times when you kind of have a crew, uh, I, I I know you mentioned kind of like or you I guess implied like um, the standards you hold yourself to and you know the habits that you learn, they usually fall down to the lowest standard. And so if everyone is just amazing, like. <laughs> the standard is set so insanely high. And actually it was interesting because Greg Knuckles has talked about this a long time ago. Um, I think it was Greg Knuckles anyways, I could be wrong, but he was saying that, you know, his, his training partners were all like 800 pound squatters. And so he's like, mm -hmm. he's like, I had no reference point. He's like, I thought that was just average and everyone could do it. And so he was making crazy gains. And then he's like, Oh, I'm one of the strongest people on the planet. I had no idea. And so yeah. it's, it's really funny how those things work where, you know, when you're with other people who are just such high caliber, they, they demand so much from you. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a really, that's a really cool experience. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's extra exciting too. And, and, and again, I don't, I don't mean to have like a, 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 like an arrogance about this because it was, you know, I mean, I was involved obviously, but it was also a lot of luck and I'm, I'm very aware of that. But not only was the physical acumen at a stupefying fucking level, but the post-physical intellectualization of what just happened was even more stupefying. You know, it's one thing to watch Dr. Fred Hadfield do, you know, 700-pound high bar squats set after set. But then it's another thing entirely to be at the dinner afterward and talk about it on the cellular level, the mechanical level, the emotional level, and talk about, you know, what came before, what's coming next. Like, like those things were the jewels. I would trade every college course I ever had for one of those meals at the local sizzler, you know, gulping down, you know, chewy, chewy, bad steak and overcooked baked potatoes while Fred talks about the intricacies of that workout. That's, that was the shit. Yeah, that's something that I found really interesting as well when I kind of first got involved in, in, uh, well, not when I first got involved in training, but I think when I started to accelerate as a coach and start gaining a little bit more knowledge, it was really cool to see like the science and, and kind of understand the science, but then actually see it play out in real world. You're like, Oh my God, like this person's getting stronger for A, B and C reasons. And here are the adaptations that are actually occurring. Here was my assumption about why I did this this is actually playing out in the real world. It was, it was a super cool thing to, 
to kind of see. It's almost like you're you're kind of like a mini scientist running these little experiments. So it was it was really awesome. Um, so getting getting kind of right into the matter. Um, yeah. Can you just talk about the, the different classification of, I guess, drugs in general? A lot of times when people think about like doping, they just think steroids. Um, but, you know, what are steroids? What are other compounds that people use to enhance athletic performance and their physiques? Yeah, actually, I want to I start, I want to go a little sideways and, and answer something you didn't ask, just partly because I'm sure that almost none of your listeners know it. And, and the reason I say that is because I didn't know it. And I... I'm considered one of the experts in the field. The word doping has always puzzled me. Where, wh- why that word? Why is that the word associated with performance enhancement? It turns out it kind of isn't. Performance enhancement as we know it actually came from horse racing. The first athletes to be pharmacologically induced were actually horses going all the way back to like the 1600s, okay? The word doping actually came when heroin, when, when the, the, the um, opium poppy was discovered and brought to the new world, okay? All sorts of drugs like lognum. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it was a syrup. It was a, a cough syrup that was opium-rich, uh, you see it in a lot of cowboy movies, people sipping it, you know, for pain and what have you. became a real addictive problem. Uh, but the moral of the story is it was an excellent way to actually knock the performance out of horses. So there were actually experts that could handicap horse races by doping up a winning horse so that the horse would not perform so well and lose races that it should have won. And if that was done improperly, the horse actually behaved impaired. You know, it would stumble around. And the crowd would actually boo, doped, dope, dope, because the horse appeared to be doped up. That's so, wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't either. And it's, it's a fascinating story. And it's actually interesting in that the world has come full circle in that, you know, Doping started out as a, you know, a, an opioid non-performance enhancing, performance inhibiting product. Then it moved into almost exclusively, you know, testosterone and anabolic steroids, which we'll cover in a second. And now, you know, late 20th, early 21st century, it's gone the other direction to the point where now doping covers a pantheon of pharmacopoeia, polypharmacy, as it's kind of being referred to in the industry. It covers everything from anabolic steroids all the way back to opioids again. So I, I find it interesting that a lot of times um, I'm, I'm criticized, and, and probably rightly so, for being overly pedantic and specific with language. But there's times when that's really, really relevant, and I think this is one of them. It's interesting. But that's where doping comes from, and it, it does a good job of illustrating that it's not just steroids anymore. You know, that, that idea that, you know, athletes use steroids. The reality is there's hundreds and possibly thousands of drugs that could have applications to performance enhancement. And that's the key is the new language is PED, performance enhancing drugs. So any drug that could have a positive influence on the athletic outcome you're trying to generate, the specific adaptation you're looking for. So it could be anything from, say, pain management. 
all the way up to muscle growth and everything in the middle, anti-inflammatories, um, you know, blood sugar management, you know, those sorts of, all those things now fall under the heading of um, the polypharmacy of athletics. Um, so the way I would very roughly group this for athletics is I would start with the obvious basics, which is what people think of as, quote, steroids. Steroid is a very generic medical term for cholesterol-based sex hormones. Sex hormones, both male and female, that your body derives from cholesterol. Cholesterol to uh, DHEA, to pregnenolone, to testosterone, to estrogen, to DHT, and down on and on and on. So that column, that, that flow chart of drugs is steroids. The major ones that we would deal with are testosterone, which is technically not an anabolic steroid, but a uh, androgenic steroid or the root base steroid. And then anabolic steroids, which are defined or at least, and interestingly here, the, the language is slowly morphing. This distinction I'm about to make is becoming less and less prevalent in the modern vernacular, but testosterone being the root androgen and then anabolic steroids being a synthetic derivative thereof. So testosterone with some sort of alteration, whether to make it orally active or more or less anabolic or more or less androgenic. So uh, testosterone with some sort of man-made derivation, then it becomes an anabolic steroid. Um, then on the female side, there's you know, estrogen, for instance, like all of birth control, are estrogen or progesterone steroids for purposes, not necessarily athletic, but I'm just trying to give you that there is a mirror image of those. Um, then secondly, we have a, well, I don't even know if it really needs numbers, but additionally, we have a category of referred to now as peptides. That would be things like insulin growth hormone, IGF-1. There's thousands. I could sit here for an hour naming peptides, but all you need to know is they're not anabolic steroids and they're protein-based. Most of them operate through a, some sort of blood sugar management axis. Um, then I would say you have a, a strong group of anti-inflammatories, be them over-the-counter like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or all the way up to your know, hardcore prescription strength anti-inflammatories like um, – my brain's not thinking of one right this moment um, – cortisone, those sorts of things. Uh, and then pain management drugs. Again, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories fall into that. Also do opioids and other things. Now, obviously, there's loads of other drugs in the world, but those are kind of really your big fundamental pools that people pick from. Now, there's all sorts of peripheral things like, say, metformin, which isn't really a peptide, but you kind of throw it in that category because it works in the blood sugar realm and a lot of you know gray area drugs. But those are kind of the general pools in which you pick from. You need muscle, you need blood sugar management, you need pain control, you need anti-inflammatory control. Those general buckets of tools give you the basic outcome or, or should be able to give you the basic outcomes you're looking for. That, is that too broad, not broad enough? Where, where do you want to go, no, my friend? No, that, no that's great. Um, so what do you think that most people get wrong when, when, when they decide to use drugs? Wow. First of all, I think most people leap to the assumption that they need drugs when maybe they don't. Now, not, that's not to say people shouldn't take drugs. I don't mean that at all. I use drugs. I have my whole career. I'm kind of the drug guy. I'm very pro-drug. But what I mean by that is I think people kind of have this belief that 
to have a gym membership, you need to have drugs. Like two, two lift weights, one needs drugs. And that's ridiculous. That's like saying, you know, if you own an automobile, you're a race car driver. Like, no, you can just own an automobile and drive around and buy groceries. There's nothing wrong with you know, going slow. Like, if you don't need to move at the speed of drugs if you don't need to move at the speed of drugs. If you just want to go to the gym, enjoy yourself, release some stress, have some fitness, fine. Will you make drug-like progress? Of course not. But is that necessary for you? Not necessarily. So I think there's a kind of a, we're almost into an era where people misassume that if they're going to be athletic, they're going to use drugs. That's not really valid. After that, I think the next biggest problem is you know, the, the internet has helped this an awful lot. You know, Ronnie Coleman or pro bodybuilder X, Y, or Z. I, know I shouldn't throw Ronnie Coleman under the bus, but you know, some famous pro bodybuilder's drug cycle is published, be it true or otherwise. And people look and go, oh, well, that's what I need to do to be a pro bodybuilder. No, that's what you need to do to be Ronnie Coleman after 30 fucking years of being Ronnie Coleman. That's a big goddamn difference. If you go back to see what that bodybuilder, and I'll stop throwing Ronnie under the bus, but you know, if you go back and see what that Mr. Olympia did the first year of their drug use, it looked nothing like that. And it shouldn't have. And I think that's where people kind of make the mistake is they lose sight of the progressions required. You know, it's like, again, going back to the analogy of like car racing, like let's say you do own the family car and you want to get into car racing. You don't buy a fucking Ferrari. You, you soup up the family car just a little bit and you learn how to do that. And then you soup that up a little bit and you learn how to do that. And, you know, so the car progresses with your skill or vice versa. You know, if you just are family, you know, you just got your, your learner's permit, you're leaping in a Ferrari, you're going to die. That's at the end of the story, you're going to die. And that applies to drug use. Mm-hmm. I know. No, and then probably the other big thing, and, and this is kind of a disjointed and out of order, but I really want to throw it out there. Is, um, there's just a very modern love affair with testosterone. Like that's this, the thing, like this, it's testosterone. And um, that's a relatively speaking, a new phenomenon. And most of the physiques, especially in the world of physique, maybe a little different in a world of performance, but, not necessarily, but especially in physiques, when you ask people, well, name a physique you like. And they always give you that Arnold, Zane, you know, they, they give you these, you know, Samir Banu, they, they give you these names, and then they're shocked when you tell them, well, that physique wasn't built on testosterone. There's this very you know, strong belief that, you know, what people are doing today is what they always did. And that, that also is not the case. It was funny because I worked at Gold's Gym uh, a long time ago, and um, I mean, I was a pretty big guy back then. I think I must have been like 240, 250. So I'm bigger now, but I was like, you know, really fat and okay-ishly strong, but nothing, nothing crazy, that's for sure. And I remember that like so many people would come up. I was so, I was so naive to the reality of drug use. And I, I honestly think that that gym in particular was way higher than normal because everyone there was doing it. But the thing was, everyone actually looked like shit. Um, Like no one looked like they were on drugs. No one looked like a competitive physique athlete. They all actually looked very, very mediocre. And 
I remember people would come up to me and they'd be like, Hey, like, what are you taking? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, I just said, no, like, I didn't realize what they're talking about. So I'd be like, Oh, like creatine, chicken breast, blah, blah, blah at, at, at the time, you know? And they're like, no, like, what are you taking? And I was like, I'm not taking anything. And <laughs> they would tell me what they were taking. And then they'd ask for my recommendations. And some of these guys, like, I remember in particular, there's one guy who was 155 pounds and you could tell he worked out if he had a shirt on, but if he took his shirt off, he was just covered in acne and was like, had much higher levels of body fat than you would expect. And he was taking 750 megs of uh, Trenbolone with like, I think also 750 megs of, of uh, testosterone. And he had been doing that for six months. And, mm. and I was just like, I remember hearing that and I was like, that sounds like a bad idea. And he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, the first thing you should do is not ask me. I was like, you should go and ask someone who knows what the fuck they're talking about, you know? But I, yeah, I was so shocked at, at how many people, like for me, that was a big eye opener because so many people there were using it. And I was just completely, um, had no idea. And, and the idea that drugs are going to be this, you know, this, this cure all, like you were saying about the whole Ronnie Coleman, th Coleman thing, right? It's like, you know, oh, pff, whatever. I could do that if I was on drugs. And it's like, sure, you could. Yeah. Sure, you could. Yeah, that, There's so that, many that, people you know, out there who are so doing all the drugs who can't get to that level. But yeah, you're and, special. And if you think about that, it's so silly. That's like saying, oh, if I had a, you know, if I had a, a, a frontline NASCAR, I, I could win NASCAR. Yeah. No, no, I can't. No, that's silly. Yeah, it's, it's just a complete devaluation of skill genetics the hard work the time the effort like everything involved and it's it's so funny because like i think the public perception is so skewed largely because social media right like you know drugs are cheating drugs are this drugs are that and like i don't know i've, I've had so many people say things like that and then i'll always be like okay well what if you're not competing or what if you're competing in a, in a sport that allows drug use that's untested exactly. you know right. and, and all of a sudden they're like well, and, and they still have a problem with it, but they can't use the it's cheating thing anymore because it's right, not, they can't articulate you know? what, the, what the problem is now. Yeah. And it's just like, I'm just irked at the core. And it's like, you must be a bad person because you do drugs. And it's like, all right, do you get mad at people for taking birth control? No. Right. All right. Well, well that's, I, that's just, you know. Yeah. I, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, you know, and, and there's really no, it, I, again, I don't know where you want to go with this conversation, but um, especially on that drug testing front, I, I personally find drug tests one of, one of the most immoral and inappropriate things that people have ever done to people. Um, you know, on one hand, they'll say this silly thing like, well, we want an even playing field. Well, I have little baby fucking hands. You have great big fucking mitt. There's no even playing field. It doesn't exist. If I wanted to play basketball, I'm, I'm fucking five foot four. Well, how, wh what would be the even playing field? Do we lower the hoop down every time I run toward it? Like, that's ridiculous. There is no level playing field. So if there's this group of tools, i.e. drugs, that can help me personally fill in my inadequacies and level the playing field, your argument actually argues for drugs, not against it. Yeah, and I mean, even even to take it one step further, like the fact that drug use is such a big issue in the Olympics and, and a whole host of sports like football and all sorts of things. It's like, if you just legalized it, that would actually be an even playing field because now everyone can do whatever the fuck they want. And like, that's actually even, you know? So, so if fairness was actually the, the main issue, 
I mean, it's, it's really a no brainer. Yeah. You know, the best argument I ever heard and, and probably not a coincidence, the best ar- argument I ever heard around drug testing was Bob Goldman, who essentially is, is the, was the creator of modern drug testing. Um, was the, uh, the head of the IOC at the time when they implemented drug testings. Um, and, and he said, much after he left the business, um, he, he said something to the effect of, um, if, if they really wanted to improve the health of athletes, which is at the time was the big, the big uh, uh, cry, you know, we, we want to protect the health of the athletes. Um, he said, we wouldn't, you know, drug test them, we would health screen them. He said, we would do cardiac tests and, you know, cancer tests and blood sugar tests. We would give them health screenings. And he said, the reason we don't do that is because they would find a zero correlation between drug use and ill health. And this is the guy that he implemented and, and, you know, basically created modern doping testing basically said that there's approximately zero correlation between ill health, dishealth, and drug use. He said they would find far more people with health problems that didn't use drugs than they would that do. That's actually a really interesting point. And so I, I guess I just kind of want to clarify that, or I guess kind of add on to that, because I actually kind of agree with, with what you're saying, but it's not necessarily intuitive. And I think it's interesting because – You know, when you look at the population, no one's really tripping on, you know, about about obesity or eating habits or any of that stuff when that's one of the leading killers in in North America and most most Western worlds, you know, Um, most developed countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and no one's really tripping about that. But people will trip on on drug use, which absolutely has, you know, health risks that need to be evaluated. But at the same time, the, the level of severity, it just seems like it, it doesn't really make sense how these things are treated if what is being proposed as the reason or the rationale is actually true. You know, if it is an actual health thing, if it is about um, fair game and fair play and all these things. And also, just to kind of take that a step further, a lot of the times people will use drug use as kind of like a, a catch-all statement, like a blanket statement, you know, whereas it's like, okay, you know, if you say drug use is, is relatively safe, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about that guy I was just talking about who's probably going to die in like freaking five years? Or are we talking about someone who's working with, you know, an endocrinologist getting regular health screens like you were talking about and adjusting their program accordingly and using, you know, let's call them conservative amounts? You know, it's like those are two completely different beasts. And so I don't necessarily think that you can lump them into the same category. And I also think they have significantly different associated risks, you know, and, and, and so it's, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's fair to really categorize them all together in the same bucket. Well, I would, I would kind of put them in the same bucket and, and I'm not, not, to, not to disagree with you blatantly, but I, I would, I, I, because of my job, I'm kind of forced to think about these things. And I would put them in kind of the same way I would put anything else together, and that is in a bell curve. And the people in which you're talking about would definitely be at the higher risk side of the bell curve. But they're not alone there. I'll explain. And there are people probably at those high doses that are down here at the safe end of the risk curve 
both because of genetic conditions, they're just tougher and tolerate drugs better. That's a real thing. And then also there's that um, checklist concept. Um, when you look at health, people throw out the word health like it's a fucking thing, like it's a unified currency that we can all trade. It's not. It's an amalgam of a lot of different things, mostly genetic and behavioral factors. So when you go down this giant checklist, you know, family history, all of those, you know, paternal and maternal, family history, you go down this list. Well, if you have no checkboxes next to cancer, heart disease, diabetes, you've got a lot more margin than the person that has checks in all those boxes. Then move to the behavioral side and you go, well, you know, lifestyle, uh, vocation, total number of training hours, body fat percentage, lean mass, um, you know, just go down, sugar intake, alcohol intake, secondary drug use intake, you know, so that just those genetic and behavioral things can position you at varying ends of the bell curve of risk. Then your personal drug use comes into the factors. So there are people that can have very conservative steroid use, but because of their alcohol and their family history, they're way up in the fucking danger zone. And then the other side of the coin is there's people taking, you know, multi-gram dosings, which if you don't know is big, uh, of steroids, but they're way down at the low risk end because they're, you know, they have a you know, low fat, low saturated fat, high aerobic capacity. They have all the counterbalances of good health. So it's, it's a, it, it's very hard to throw anyone into a specific bucket when you realize that every bucket is kind of this, uh, you know, um, superposition sine wave of quantum mechanics. It's, it's really a weird thing when you really think about it. Yeah, and I really like how you broke that down a little bit further even. And, and that, that's kind of exactly what I was talking about, right? Where, where, you know, you can take two people and say, okay, they're both doing drugs, but they're not the same people. They're, they're not going to have anywhere near the same outcomes because the Absolutely. context is completely different or can be completely different. And so, so yeah, I really like how you broke that down, especially about the, the initial screening um, and, and kind of where your starting point is and what your potential for for risk might be because of the lifestyle and behavioral things, which, which actually leads me into, into the next question. So, um, you know, how, how important is nutrition training, cardio, blood work, all that stuff when, when you're using drugs? I mean, it, just from what you were saying, it sounds like it's relatively important, but can you kind of elaborate on that? Well, I'm, I'm kind of the really, really the devil's advocate on that because I, I take it. I take everything to the absolute logical extreme. I'm, I'm that guy. And no argument. My entire job, my deal is blood work. I need analytics to make decisions. But I just see drug use as the final iteration of that. When people come to me, and I get this all the time, you know, so-and-so athlete, you know, I'd really like to work with you. I'd really like you to help me manage my thing. And then they'll say something stupid like, should I get blood work? And my answer to them is not, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, they expect like, oh, yeah, well, when we implement a drug plan, I'll need – and my answer is, do you have blood? And they get this really confused, kind of strange look on their face. And, and then they, you know, I don't respond to their dumb looks. And then they finally go, well, uh, yeah, I, I assume so. And I'm like, then you should fucking check it. And you should have been fucking checking it since the moment you realized you had some. 
That's what it. That's that's how it works. You have an automobile in your driveway. There's that fucking dipsticky thing in there. You periodically pull it out and look. Why? Because you can't actually see inside the engine. So even if you're just a family car grocery getter, you know, soccer mom, you still do blood work on your car. Why the fuck don't you do it on you? Every single person with the ways and means on this planet should get blood work not less than once a year. And then the more risk factors you have, the more often you should get blood work. Drug use is definitely going to be a risk factor, so it's going to step you up. But the point is, is how do you, like people just like, you just look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I look good, I must be healthy. And they fucking go about their day. There's all kinds of shit inside here that you can't see. I'm a goddamn expert. I don't know what's going on in here. You gotta, gotta do the dipstick thing. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. That, that That's a, a little bit of a pet thing for me. Yeah. And so when it comes to nutrition, um, I know a lot of the times people who use drugs, uh, especially when they use them kind of earlier on in their career without really taking the time to develop themselves naturally to, to getting mm -hmm. relatively close to their kind of upper end um, of their performance or physique or whatever before deciding to use drugs. A lot of the times the, the perception is this is kind of like a cheat code. This is going to mm -hmm. get me lean, get me shredded. I don't have to put in as much effort, which to some degree is true. But at the same time, it also kind of seems to me that, especially based on the initial criteria you mentioned, right? Like, how is your heart health? How's your diet? Are you using drugs? Are you drinking? It seems like nutrition, cardio, training, all these things almost become, I don't know if they become more important, but, but it definitely should be prioritized if it's not because of the potential risk involved. You know, and but also just to even maximize results. So, so how do you typically approach that with with an athlete? Well, it's it's really funny. What you're saying was actually Dr. Fred Hadfield's absolute pet bitch in the world. Uh, he was very he had some wacky ways of wording things. But what what he would say right there, the the thing he would blurt out right there is, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe. That was his that was his response to that. And as ridiculous a statement as that is, it's accurate. And but what he meant was, you you can't you can't build a build a big building without a big foundation. He really felt that that foundational work, like you said, training up toward your um, your genetic potential, is actually not the way he would think about it. Although it, it's kind of the same thing, but it wasn't the idea that you were training for some cap of ability and you, you can't progress further. What he thought is you started in that very natural-esque mindset of almost in the same way that the world worked pre-internet in that kind of mentoring mindset. You progressed through these things, not to achieve some end goal, but to achieve like literally like martial arts, to achieve belts. Like you get your, 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 your yellow belt, your red belt, your blue belt, your black belt. Oh, fuck. Now I actually know enough about this that maybe I can actually progress into the world of drugs. Trying to, you know, it, it's like giving a samurai sword to somebody with their, on their first day of lessons. They're just going to cut off their fucking hands. But after enough lessons, you master the idea of training consistently. You understand recovery. You, know, you master nutrition, at least as it applies to that level of training. You master lifestyle. You, you literally, and also you, 
um, apply yourself to such a point that you basically prove either to yourself or to others that you're really committed to this, that this is actually a thing that's worth investing drug use in. Rather than just starting at the most dangerous point, why not progress through all the early points, kind of prove to yourself and others that this is actually a thing worth doing, and then doing it. So it's you're, you're kind of your acumen progresses with your physique so that when you get to that drug moment, you have the foundations, you have the intellect, and you have the emotional capacity to do it. And I think that's really, really been lost in the high-speed internet age. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that's such a great, uh, a great attitude. And I mean, I think that's equally applicable to, to just naturals with, you know, how they view supplements, exactly like you were saying, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm going to do my fit teas, detoxes, things like that. And the thing is, I, I get the appeal, um, but, but generally speaking, if something's too good to be true, it's because it's too good to be true. Yeah, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really great point just about developing those foundational habits, the lifestyle and stuff, because I actually do know a handful of people who um, started using drugs, but also were also habitual users of more recreational style drugs and some relatively hard drugs. And this was kind of like, you know, several years ago. And they actually did have a couple of, of like health scares that landed them in the hospital. And, and, you know, um, I remember when I was speaking with them, they're like, yeah, I knew it. It was the, it was the testosterone. And, and I was like, well, what did your doctor say? And he's like, well, he said I had this. And I'm like, man, you've been doing testosterone for like <laughs> not that long. Like I'm, I'm, I seriously doubt that that's what it is. It's probably right. the cocaine and all this other shit that you're putting into your body and not sleeping and being stressed out and like trading and, you know, oh man, it was, uh, it's kind of crazy. But, yeah. Uh, that, you know, that's that th there's also that concept of, you know, it, it crops up in all sorts of realms, um, food allergies, all sorts of places where it's, not necessarily the thing. I mean, the thing may be, you know, oh, wheat. Wheat, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe people have an intolerance to wheat, maybe they don't. It's, but it can be a, if you have 47 intolerances, the 48th one could put you over the edge. So it's not that you're hyper, you know, re responsive to wheat. It's just that was one wheat too fucking many. And I think we find that a lot of times with drug uses. You know, it's not necessarily that steroids are evil or even though I'm not a fan, even the cocaine is that evil. It's that you can only do so many of these things before the outcome is fucking evil. Right. Yeah. And so when it comes to drugs, um, I know there's kind of different camps and you know, you're probably obviously a little bit more aware. Maybe there's some additional ones, but generally the conversation that I hear is around uh, cycling on and off versus getting on and just staying on. So like what's, what's the difference? What are the cost benefits of both? And what's the sort of strategy behind both? Okay. Basic drug use has certain consequences, both, you know, financial, physical, legal, et cetera. Um, how do we want to tackle this? Let's start with the most obvious and egregious testosterone. Your body manufactures or doesn't manufacture testosterone based on the concept of a feedback loop. Not super important we go into the details, but here's the real key that people seem to miss right out of the gate. You say, oh, well, you, you have a high or low or normal 
testosterone level. The reality is you don't have a level. You have an average. Okay? This testosterone level is actually a sine wave. Production is a binary concept. It's either 100% or zero. So production pushes values up. They cross a certain threshold that production stops. Then that value declines over time through metabolization and what have you. And then it declines to a given point, And then, oh, production comes on 100%. So your actual testosterone level is the sine wave on and off, on and off. Which is exactly normal and it's how people work. It's also tied to the fact that men and women are ultimately the same creature under all of this. Every embryo in the world is female. Um, and a gene switch actually makes men men. Sorry, guys, but it's true. Actually, all men are women. All women are women. The universe is female. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, it's tied to that, and it actually is part of how women do their whole magical make babies thing, is that the root of that cyclic nature. But that's way off point. But anyway, your, your testosterone value is this sine wave. Here's the gig. So you start dumping exogenous testosterone in. Testosterone values go up, but they go way above that cutoff point where your body will now go don't make any more we have too much but you're adding it artificially so that goes up so now production on your level is zero okay because production is binary it's on or off you've turned it off values keep going up now step away from that momentary picture of this you know globe if you have a concept of globe and you got tropical capricorn tropical cancer and the equator you've crossed the tropic line there's no more production Fair enough, but you're growing gobs of muscle because you're anabolic. Everything's happy. Now, think of what testosterone production is. It's production. No different than a factory down the street that makes fucking tennis shoes or widgets or whatever. It's a factory. If you own a factory and you close for the weekend and then you reopen like that regular sine wave kind of thing, no foul. Everybody goes home for the weekend. You turn out the lights. You come back on Monday. Turn all the machines on, and boom, you start making tennis shoes day one. Let's say you're European and you close for two weeks. Uh, you might have to sweep the floors, you know, fill the vending machines, do some minor maintenance, but you, you open right back up again. But now let's say Fucko is going to take testosterone for six months, like you had mentioned. Now you're going to close that factory for six months the actual quality of the factory, the capacity of the factory will diminish because it's, it's disuse. It's closed. So now when you come back, you're literally buying an inoperable factory and you have to re-outfit everything. So the recovery to production is much longer. And the longer you close it, the harder the reopening. And eventually you can actually get to the point where it's just fucked and it never opens again. So from a comparative kind of view, that's what you're doing. You're shutting down the factory, and the longer you shut it down, the less likely it is to reopen. That's basically the, one of the major issues with drug use and that on and off. The longer you're on, obviously, the, the, the better things work because you know, it, you're getting more growth and more growth potentials, but you're closing that natural production. Now, here's where things get almost philosophical okay so that doesn't negate the idea of cycles or courses you could start your drug course shut down your natural production continue do your course finish now you could stop 
wait for that factory to reopen. Now you have natural capacity and you're manufacturing your own testosterone. However, a significant portion of what you gained is going to diminish because it's no longer supported artificially. But you'll still maintain much. Usually 50% is kind of the ballpark, you know, where you gain 20 pounds, keep 10 kind of thing. About 50% of gains kept. A rough average. Or the other option is you could implement TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. And what that means is you're going to just artificially insert the amount of testosterone you would have otherwise made. That way you don't diminish to zero because there's Fox production. And a lot of times athletes will kind of go above that into maybe the realm of sports TRT, which is a wholly made up word by probably myself, but nonetheless, it's a real thing, but it's less than that sports level. So there's definitely a kind of a periodization decline more closer to baseline. The problem is that doesn't allow the, 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 the opening of the factory and the natural production concept. So now you've got a thing where, yes, this is better for your health than just taking drugs full speed all the time but it's not really allowing that natural production concept. So it really comes down to a philosophy of just how important is that to you? Is your native ability to manufacture testosterone 20 years from now important to you now? And that could also, and it's a bit of a separate conversation, but it could, and I didn't say does, but could have an impact on your long-term fertility. That's probably a bit more exaggerated than, than, than the reality. Uh, people love to think that you can just become in, infertile from steroid use, but most people I know can't buy infertility. It's a, it's a little harder to get than you think. Uh, if that were the case, we, we, you know, we, we athletes wouldn't have fucking school buses full of fucking kids. We do. But that's a th- like, <laughs> it's like, awesome. Say goodbye to condoms, you know? Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, but the, anyway, that's very roughly what's going on there. Um, my experience is the committed, the relatively organized and low on the overall risk factors that, you know, family history, behavioral, et cetera. Most of those people ultimately wind up in kind of the long-term TRT, HRT concept where they're taking some background testosterone all the time, not trying to force their body to recover Um, Is it absolutely best for health? No. Is it probably the very best compromise between progress and health? Yes. When I I know you kind of address some of the, some of the risk factors of, of drug use um, as far as like infertility goes, Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the, the risks involved in using drugs? And then what are some of the things that you can do to kind of, you know, mitigate that based on the individual's kind of level of risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so just some examples would be sure. like maybe drug cycling or stacking or, you know, anything else that I'm just not yeah. aware of. Well, a lot of factors come into that a lot more than you might think. And I'm certainly not trying to dodge you or your listeners, but I, I, I really just want to kind of give you a glimpse of how complex that question really is. Um, Every single sport has different requirements. Literally every single sport. Like the difference of 
uh, offense versus defense in a game like football or soccer or rugby, even that is a difference in athlete. It's that individualized. So the major risk factors for drugs can be certain things, fertility, um, blood lipid profile. Those are kind of universal. Everyone who takes drugs needs to address those things. But from there, oh, my God, the um, VO2 max of your sport will definitely impact how high or low your hematocrit gets. That's a controllable factor by drugs. Um, The loads and total uh, volume of repetition you're doing in your sport is going to have orthopedic impacts. That's maybe not directly to the drugs, but it's something you could use drugs to mitigate, and then that's going to have health consequences. So every single thing is so unique, and the exact ratio of what those original buckets of drugs, which buckets you're dipping into, in what organization, in what values, all of that's going to have long-term and even short-term impacts on your immediate health. So I would say that for this conversation, pretty much the only things we can really dial into is anabolic steroids in general, testosterone anabolic steroids tend to negatively impact total cholesterol and HDL LDL ratio as well as particle size, but that's a bit more complicated and tend to have influences on androgen estrogen ratios, which can have impacts on everything from fertility to psychology. Mm-hmm. There's loads of other things, inflammation, um, uh, uh, um, uh, insulin sensitivity, but almost all of those things I covered can also be mitigated by the same basic set of tools, high lean mass, low body fat, and high fitness. And that last one's the one that fucks people up because – Fitness, I mean on a global sense. When you say fitness to a biologist, which I am, you're usually talking about fitness at what you want to do. Like, to be a fit powerlifter, all you have to do is this. Like, that's technically the fitness test of a powerlifter. How how smoothly can you extend your arms to arm's length? How how, efficiently can you stand upright? Like, that's that's the, the keys of powerlifting. But I mean fitness as an actual organism meaning low pulse, low blood pressure, you know, high glucose tolerance, those sorts of things, actual metabolic fitness. And that requires cardiovascular fitness, and that's where things fall off most of the time. Can you just elaborate on what you mean by uh, glucose tolerance? Yeah. Um, to be hypermuscular, not even to just be hypermuscular, usually to be hyperathletic, you are consuming vast amounts of energy. Vast amounts of carbohydrates, largely. Even if you are of the mindset that you know, food composition doesn't matter that much, just to eat thousands of calories, you're getting lots of carbohydrates. That carbohydrate is going to require the body's pancreas to generate insulin for absorption and utilization. That oversaturation, that overexposure to insulin, eventually begins to blunt the tissue's receptivity to insulin, and you get diabetic-like, non-ideal blood glucose values. And so as you eat these carbohydrates, they build up in your blood instead of in your muscles. You get high blood glucose that can lead to, if not blatant diabetes, a lot of the early negative cardiovascular inflammation-type impacts. 
And that is a huge, huge effector on all the other values. Aerobic activity and low body fat percentage and high lean mass are the major mitigators of that. As your lean mass goes up, you have more ability to absorb glucose. And as you do more and more aerobic exercise, the enzyme ratios adjust to be more efficient at dealing with said glucose. So fitness, aerobic fitness, is a huge factor in long-term survivability in this world. And so as far as um, like the actual drugs that, that you're going mm-hmm. to be using, um, what's the difference between orals and injectables? Obviously, they're going to be different specific things, but... Right. Um, yeah, um, sure. Let's see, how do I want to tackle this? Uh, oftentimes, they're actually not, quote, different. And, and, I, and I know that's a blatant contradiction and sounds ridiculous, but, but it's not. I'll give you an example of, of names that people listening might know. Um, probably everyone in the world's heard of Dianabol, one of the oldest, kind of one of the original anabolics. Okay. There's also a drug called Equipoise or Boldenone. Dianabol is an, an oral typically originally five milligram tablets and boldenone is an injectable drug originally five uh, 50 milligrams per milliliter that doesn't matter um, but the reality is they were created by the same company they were created by Seba pharmaceuticals back in the late 50s and they are comically exactly the same drug methanan stendrolone the drug that became Dianabol. They later took Dianabol and made a different alteration to the same root drug to make it injectable. So the reality is they can actually be exactly the same drug. So now I'll explain the difference between oral injectable and some of the consequences. But I just wanted to point out that it's not this kind of night and day thing where they're kind of like two separate species. They're oftentimes actually exactly the same drug. Like Winstrol is another drug that can come in you know, pharmaceutically can come in either an oral or an injectable uh, version or format. So very roughly, here's how it works. Let's start with the boldenone, which is a Dianabol depot, which was what they were going to originally market it as. Don't look for that in the literature because you won't find it, but they chose not to market it for human use. and They moved it into the veterinary. But originally the thinking was they were going to sell it. Dianabol was such a big seller that they thought, well, you know, making this a long-acting injectable drug would be a good market move. We'll make Dianabol Depot, Depot meaning medically meaning long-acting. So that was the thinking. They chose not to do it, but not relevant. So I go through this when I do my live speech, and I'm, I'm going to be momentarily a little bit condescending, but bear with me. It's because um, I have um, kind of like we talked about earlier is uh, – I have to pander to the lowest common denominator. And when I'm addressing a room full of, you know, professional wrestlers or, you know, professional football players, they're not chemists. They're not wizards in the world of science. So I have to use language that they're going to get. And I don't mean that as a a, a besmirch. It's just the reality. Um, So when you say, you know, testosterone enanthate or boldenone undecyclinate, those are big, complicated, sciencey words that, most people don't really understand. So what I tell people is, let's dial down to words you really, really understand. So instead of saying testosterone enanthate, let's say peanut butter and jelly. Anyone, anyone in the Western world can grasp two slices of bread, one covered with peanut butter and one covered with jelly. It's that simple. 
and it literally is. If you just erase the peanut butter and put testosterone and you erase the jelly and put enanthate, it would be exactly the same thing. And metaphorically, it is. You have testosterone, enanthate. You have peanut butter and jelly. And when you smash that together, you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, you can peel it apart. You can change the jelly. You can have grape jelly, raspberry, strawberry, that disgusting shit with the orange peel in it. The jelly can change so many ways. But when you put it together, when you put them side by side, it's still peanut butter and jelly. So testosterone enanthate, testosterone cypionate, propionate, phenylpropionate, undecyclinate, it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, the word you say first is still peanut butter. It's testosterone is testosterone is testosterone. I'm coming to a point, I know I sound like I'm off target, but here's what happens. So you have peanut butter and jelly, and the kind of jelly doesn't matter, and you put it in a syringe and you inject it into muscle. Imagine a, a, a Sunday roast you know, on the counter and you take a big bulb squirter and you squirt flavoring in there. Now there's a, a pocket of flavoring inside of your meat. That's literally what you just did to your ass end when you take an injection of testosterone. So now there's testosterone enanthate or peanut butter and jelly inside the meat, okay? It turns out that peanut butter and jelly is too large, mechanically, literally too large, to diffuse into the meat and be washed away. So the peanut butter must be separated from the jelly. Now, individually, peanut butter and jelly are sufficiently small that they can cross into the bloodstream and be washed away for metabolism, for waste products, whatever. The, the key crooks here is, Peanut butter and jelly enter, peanut butter and jelly independently then enter the body and are dealt with. So the thing entering your bloodstream is just testosterone or just boldenone or just, okay? So it goes in as one, comes out as two. That's key. Meaning the thing that enters your bloodstream is the active drug. It's testosterone. Now, if you were to take that same boldenone, in this case, you, you, you inject boldenone, undecyclinate, the boldenone and the undecyclinate are separated, boldenone enters the bloodstream, goes about its job doing its thing. Okay. Let's say instead of the injectable version, you took the tablet. Okay. It's still the same drug as boldenone, but instead of this undecyclinate, it's a large, complicated um, uh, methyl group, okay? You'll hear C17-alpha alkylate. Well, that, alpha, that alkylate, alpha is just a position. 17 is a, literally like a geography number. There's like a, like a roadmap. You, one, two, three, four, it goes around. You count at the 17 position, at the alpha orientation, there's now an alkylate. So now you eat peanut butter and jelly. The catch is to survive human digestion or basically the digestion of any animal, that jelly must be really, really robust, that it cannot be digested by the horrific acids in your stomach, okay? And the thing that then ultimately makes its way through to your bloodstream is not the drug, not the peanut butter, but the peanut butter and the jelly. So now you've got peanut butter and jelly in your bloodstream, and keep in mind, this jelly is so egregious that your stomach couldn't break it down. The thing that breaks down fucking bone and gristle and you know all the fucking horrible things you eat in a day, hot dogs, 
Like it, it can digest that, but it can't digest this. So now this circulates in your body. It's inactive. It can't do anything because it's stuck to this jelly. Unfortunately, the, the player in this game that's responsible for now taking the peanut butter jelly sandwich apart, giving you peanut butter, is your liver. So your liver, that liver enzymes as you hear them, is what's responsible for uncoupling the drug from the ester. So injectable drug all by itself, free to go about its business. Oral drug plus ester, liver's involvement, liver's irritation, and then drug and ester are sent free. That's where you hear the first pass. That's that first pass. So oral drugs have this wonderful benefit of being very easy to take and pretty easy to dose. However, the consequences, the, the, what you pay in return for that is a greater metabolic cost of your liver now has to deal with it first before it can even work. Is that a sufficient yep. explanation? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and so I, I remember earlier you mentioned uh, just kind of like briefly that some drugs impact um, your actual psychology. So, oh, yeah. you know, I'm sure everyone's heard of roid rage and, and things like that. Um, how much of that is true and, and how much variation is there from, from person to person or can there be from person to person? Boy, you're really into a into a slippery bit of slope there. There's a number of there's a number of layers to that. Like like that bell curve I mentioned, there is a pretty pretty broad bell curve. Um, people like myself, probably yourself, pretty even keel. I mean, I'm wound up and I'm passionate about what I do, but I'm like this all the time. I'm not particularly uh, you know, whimsical. And the other side of the coin is there are people that are particularly excitable and you're just, just naturally and natively. And so that factors into it, just like that risk, you know, concept of, you know, where do you fit on the bell curve before you start taking drugs? You know, if you were manic and you know, way up in the middle or far end of the bell curve to begin with, anything, a cup, a cup of fucking cup of coffee is going to put you over to bed. So that's a reality. Then secondly, I'll come back to that last. Let's, I'll go to this next. In, in the world of drugs, there's, I mentioned, you know, that cholesterol, DHEA, pregnenolone, testosterone. Now, there's actually a, a, a trifurcation of three different legs of a family tree, three different kind of subcategories of steroids. There's testosterone derivatives. There's DHT or dihydrotestosterone derivatives. And then there's 19 nor testosterone derivatives. We won't go into the chemistry. Just trust me. There's three subcategories and they're all each in that category is related to its, each other, much like a family tree. What you find is across the board, somewhat globally and unilaterally, that 19 nor category is the root of all the horrible stories about roid rage. Is it to say it's the only complicit factor? No. But almost always, you hear somebody really kind of losing their shit. It's almost always that nandrolone, trenbolone, you know, meth trienolone, that 19 nor family. Some people are a little sensitive to the DHT families. Most are not. I, you know, I'm certainly, I feel like I get more docile the more I take. But so there's, 
there's your natural predisposition of where you kind of fit on the sliding scale and then what family of drugs you use. And then also keep in mind, there's also, um, and this is where I said I'll come back to that last, a lot of what people prize from anabolic steroids is really more side effect than effect. The intended effect of anabolic steroids is an accretion of lean mass. That's the intended purpose. Maintenance of uh, androgenic action, you know, your masculinity, your ability to get erections and do man shit, and then the accumulation of muscle. All the other things are technically, medically, side effects. Some sports, the side effects are actually more valuable than the effects. I'll give you two wildly different examples. Tour de France cycling. You look at Lance Armstrong and you don't think, hey, there's a steroid user. Like you don't look at him and think, you know, Hulk Hogan pro wrestling, you know, Mr. Olympia. But yet, clearly, we know from history there's pretty egregious steroid use in that sport. They're actually seeking one of the side effects, which is the buildup of red blood cells, the buildup of oxygenate, blood oxygenation, which allows them to ride up the side of a fucking mountain at 30 miles an hour without, you know, gassing out. So in a way, they're actually prizing the side effects above the intended effects. So you got Tour de France on one side. Now let's move all the way to the other side. Let's say like um, MMA. Yeah, being bigger, stronger, faster, leaner, that's all valuable. But so is being so ravenously fucking angry that you want to kill anyone locked in a cage with you. That's also a huge benefit in that sport. So you now have this concept of where do you fit on the natural scale of things, and then what is actually your target outcome coupled with what category must you shop in to get that target outcome, and you get a lot of variation in ultimate outcome. But the reality is, yes, there is a, a certain reality to you know, being masculine is somewhat aggressive, and then there's the last little thing I would 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 kind of touch on a lot of times the real one of the big benefits people get from anabolics is basically the difference if you look at kids on a playground you can kind of identify the ones you're like that's an alpha that's that that kid's going to move towards sports and then you can kind of look and you go "Mm, that's a beta that kid's going to move more toward the arts and it's, it's ignorant and wrong, and yet it's also real. You can do that. And you're wrong sometimes, but in a general sense, you can kind of see the emotional profile of alpha versus beta. Anabolics kind of are alpha in a bubble. And you can kind of get an elevation in man, in male. It's actually certainly one of the benefits female athletes get from anabolics. Not always, you know, not always something people want to talk about, you know, publicly, but it's definitely a thing. You get that more aggressive, more assertive, uh, more self-confident um, alpha behaviors, which aren't necessarily enough to be problematic, but they can actually be quite beneficial. If you were right on the cusp of having solid you know, self-confidence, a couple hundred milligrams of testosterone can 
really push you into no no I, i'm i'm right i'm you know very man very you know no no i'm right <laughs> maybe you aren't but you can certainly get that belief you can cultivate and, and and generate that so it's again it's that sliding scale there's a certain amount that's inevitable and and kind of beneficial and then it can go all the way to really really egregious does any of that attenuate over time I don't see you funny you ask that I had this conversation with a really and I say I'm an expert I spend more my time haranguing experts real fucking experts and I had this very conversation with them and at the end of the conversation we kind of had a gentleman's disagreement my stance on that is I don't think so what I think changes is like we talked about that early foundational stuff, I think you develop habits, and it's kind of like owning a gun. Does a gun ever get less dangerous? No, a gun's a gun. But I think your comfort and skill with it and, and it with you improves to such a level that the, the safety is higher. But it's not because of the gun. It's because of the amalgam of you and the gun. That makes sense. Yeah. I think so, that's what happens. I don't think that the aggression goes away. I think you get better at and more comfortable at being that. And therefore, you're less dangerous. But it's not because you're less dangerous. It's because you behave less dangerous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, you've got more authority over the situation. Yeah. That, and that again, it kind of goes back to that like black belt thing. Like, you know, you don't give the gun to the white belt. You give the gun to the black belt because they, they just have enough worldly experience to just not shoot someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that was just kind of something that popped into my head, actually. Um, awesome. So, so one thing that I did want to touch on, that this is, this is definitely going to be really taboo, is PED use in sports and specifically how people get away with uh, with with using drugs in sports, I mean, Lance Armstrong was tested like what over three hundred times or some crazy yeah. thing like that, and he didn't get popped once. The only reason he got busted was because he came out and and admitted it to everyone, yeah. you know. But um, so so how is it that someone can go about evading testing from USADA and WADA when these are like apparently supposed to be busting everyone? There's a literally probably a, an almost infinite number of ways. I, I, and again, I'm not trying to dodge you. I'm really trying to give you um, a, a tip of the, you know, kind of a, a view of the how big the iceberg really is under the water. You know, what you see is just a pinch. I'll give you some very generic concepts and then maybe a few more specifics. First of all, the test is designed in such a way that it has a certain amount of I, I, I don't think anyone would really want to word it this way, but I will. It's basically not a you can't take drugs. It's this is the most amount of drugs you could take without failing. So right out of the gate, the test is kind of, if not intentionally, Maybe unintentionally, but it's designed in such a way that 
there's a certain amount of cheating built in. You're allowed a certain margin. And it goes, especially in the realm of testosterone, this is kind of how the thinking went. Most people produce X amount of testosterone. However, there is that random aberrant asshole that produces twice that much. Now, maybe somewhere there's a person that produces even a little more than that we don't know about. So they had to set the upper limit at about 300% of the real upper limit to really be sure they wouldn't unintentionally incriminate someone that just happened to be exceptional. Remember that whole level playing field bullshit? So if 85 or 90% of the people are right in the middle of the, you know, the normal zone, and there's that one asshole up here at the 300% zone, it means the normal asshole can double and still not cross the threshold. So it's not so much you can't take drugs, it's kind of this handicap, well, you can't take more than this much or we're really going to call you on it. Now, it takes a lot of care and delicate you know, diagnostics to stay within that zone, but nonetheless, right out of the gate, this idea that it's a drug-free environment is wrong. It's just wrong. On top of that, there are drugs that have a very short detection window. Two that jump to mind, talking about those varying buckets. The bucket of peptides, for instance, insulin and growth hormone, they are proteins. Proteins break down really quickly. In the case of insulin and growth hormone, hours. Literally, you could take a dose of growth hormone at 7 a.m., and at noon, you could pass a drug test. Okay? Not because of clever, secret, you know, systems. Just because that's how long that drug takes to break down. So, you know, and then on top of that, I think people like myself know some clever ways to even shorten that margin. But that aside, I mean, just doing things kind of by the book, the, the detection window is fucking phenomenally short here. So right out of the gate, you might as well just write it off. They're not catching anyone for growth hormone. And, and lo and behold, if you look at the statistics, they've been drug testing for growth hormone for five years now, and they've caught, what, 12 people? I mean, I'm pretty sure more than 12 people on planet fuck Earth have taken growth hormone. <laughs> pretty sure I'm responsible for, you know, 20 times more than that myself. <laughs> so, you know, it, one, the test is designed kind of to encompass that bell curve of people. So there's a big spread. And then some of these drugs just natively are very, very hard to detect. Then, as I mentioned, there are people like myself that specialize in ways to work around these. So now we have special administrations that make it even harder. And then last, you know, I personally don't have this ability, but rest assured, if I was the Chinese government or, you know, the government of any fucking country around the world, would certainly have enough money to, I don't know, open a lab and alter drugs into formats that previously did not exist and therefore are very hard to look for because you don't know what you're looking for. You know, quote, designer drugs. So the, the, the idea that you know drug tests are that hard to beat is re- really kind of silly um you know it's not foolproof and it's not super simple but it, it's obviously not that hard because there's just so many indications that it's happening um again i'll use a logical argument which 
can be problematic. Logic isn't the ultimate arbiter of everything. But go back to 1976. And I know that sounds like prehistory, dawn of time, but momentarily consider this. 1976, Olympics, no drug test. Okay? You look at all of the – actually, I'm telling you a lie, and I'll come back to the lie. You look at the, the numbers lifted in Olympic weightlifting. We'll just pick that as the thing. Okay? Weight class and weight lifted, weight class and weight lifted, you create a, a scale. Okay? They did, in fact, drug test at Olympics. They didn't do any enforcement. They tested. And the failure rate was through the roof. The failure rate was like 85%. Okay. So 85% of these people, probably 100%, the test was just ineffective, that 15%, but 85% of the people were using drugs to achieve these numbers. Okay. So now we have a concept of do drugs work? Let's momentarily see, yeah, yes, they do. So drugs work and people are taking drugs, they performed at this level. Four years later, they drug tested, they used enforcement measures Almost no one failed, and all the records went up ever so slightly. So if drugs work and people performed here, you remove drugs and people got better, that defies base logic. So from the inception of drug testing, you can pretty much guarantee that it didn't fucking work. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting because even, even, even some of the things that aren't necessarily intuitive that you wouldn't ask unless you're maybe a little bit more um, involved like i know usada and wada and some of these other organizations um have you know their own hand in in like politics and stuff like that where yeah. certain people will be tested tons other people will hardly be tested um, generally they're testing people who are like good but not great Yep. Um, you know, and so they can kind of bolster their numbers, but they want to leave people who are favorites who are at the top. And, and there's a lot of different kind of criticisms of things like that, that when you actually look at who's being busted, you can kind of be like, mm, I'm a little suspicious. And I, I think for me, when, when I really realized, like, I guess here, here's the way I see it. Like, I, I don't, I don't look at athletes and be like, you're doping or I don't, and I don't think that everyone's doping but I'm also not naive enough to assume that everyone's honest, you know, I, it's not, it's just not something I really care about. You know, I'm just kind of like, whatever, do your thing. I get it. I get why people do it in the Olympics. I get why people do it in professional sports. I don't think that that's a knock on their character. Personally. I know a lot of people do. I don't um, I, like, I get it. I, I honestly do understand why you would do something like that. I'm not surprised in any way, shape or form why people do it. Um, yeah. I I'll give you one more uh, way people beat drug tests, and it, it's it's um, one I find probably the most egregious, if you will. Um, legal means. Kind of like, you know, the presidential election. You know, we had an election, and now we're having court cases to actually settle the election. Very similar. These organizations need to write a huge amount of doctrine defining what they're testing for, how they're testing. Well, the problem with law is it's pedantic. The law says you cannot do X. Well, what if I do X.25? What if I do X subscript 1? Is that still X? 
Uh, now you go to a fucking judge. Judge doesn't know nuts about science. So the drug says, well, the law says you can't do X. And the guy goes, I, I didn't do X. I did this other thing. Not knowing that it's fucking right next to X in the line. It's, it's the next choice if you don't have X. And then the judge goes, well, it's not that. Clearly you didn't fail. Boom, case solved. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at the legal constructs, if I'm an Olympic athlete and I won't throw a specific athlete under the bus because I actually helped consult on this concept, but I'll use hypotheticals. Let's say I was a Olympic gold medalist from a given country. And after the Olympics, I retire officially filed the necessary paperwork legally. I'm retired. I'm no longer now in the testing pool. I can take drugs avant fucking guard, at least, you know, the legal and ethically within my country, perhaps. No issue. I can make all the progress in the world. I have complete free reign. And then 18 months before the next Olympics, I could go, hey, I, I changed my mind. I want to unretire and re-enter the testing pool. I just have to pass the first test they give me. That whole 24-ish months between Olympics that I was completely outside of the, the realms of testing, do whatever I want. So I have two years to use drugs in any way, shape, or form I want. I just have to be clean when I announce my re-entry into the testing pool. And that's completely legal, and they can't say dick about it. That's wild. Yeah, I wasn't even aware of that. Like for, for, for me, I, uh, I remember cause like I personally know three individuals who were Olympic gold medalists and or world champions in their sport and they all doped and they were telling me about their teammates. They were telling me about some of their friends and I was like, no fucking way, no way. Like I didn't believe it. And these are people telling me that. And I was just like, no way. Like there's, there's no way that happened. And they're like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's, that's how it is. Like, if you don't do that, you're not winning. And I was just Absolutely. like, oh, shit, like, that's crazy. And, you know, I, I think, like, depending, obviously, on the sport, like you were saying at the beginning, is going to determine what kind of drugs you're using. But even in curling, I remember someone got busted in the last Olympics for taking, like, Adderall or some shit or, like, some sort of medication to help them focus that was banned. And, and so it's like, yeah. Our, uh, marksmanship, is, marksmanship is one of the most – uh, has one of the highest failure rates per capita, total entrance to total failures. Um, archery and that uh, nutty shit where you ski and then shoot. I don't know the name of it. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. One, one of the highest failure rates is that. That's wild. They, they, and, and the reason is actually interesting. Again, it's the kind of the difference between the buckets of drugs. You're talking about mostly beta blockers to, to lower um, stress levels those just happen to be very easily detected drugs. So they run a much higher risk to use the drugs. Right. That's wild. That's really interesting. Like, yeah, honestly, I, I feel like I would even love to have a full on conversation just about, I guess the ethics of, of drug use and just kind of really get into a lot more nuance about that at, at some point, that'd be a super interesting conversation to have. I've, I've had them kind of like, you know, in a less, um, a less official setting before, but, yep. but, uh, but yeah, I feel like that'd be an awesome thing to kind of address. Um, so w one last question, I guess, um, just sure. cause I kind of want to be respectful of your time. Um, 
one of the things you mentioned earlier was, um, you know, how drug use and testosterone in particular could impact uh, natural testosterone production and potentially even libido from that. Mm -hmm. So if you are taking testosterone and you notice either a gradual reduction in your libido or, you know, let's say of a somewhat rapid reduction in your libido all of a sudden, um, you know, I know some people experience like erectile dysfunction and other things like that. What, what is that indicative of, or what, I guess maybe there's multiple things that could be indicative of, and how would you go about treating that? Yeah, unfortunately, there is an awful lot of working parts there. Um, well, moving pieces. There's a kind of only one working part there or not. <laughs> but a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, I guess I got to watch my language. Um, there's a number of, of players there, but it would all basically dial into blood work and looking at some of the sub-hormones or the um, downstream hormones. Testosterone is testosterone. However, the male creature doesn't manufacture estrogen. Women can actually manufacture estrogen. Their ovaries actually make the hormone that is estrogen. In men, we don't. We produce testosterone. Then adipocytes, fat cells, actually produce an enzyme that then cleaves testosterone into estrogen. So now there's a number of working parts. There's the total amount of estrogen, or rather testosterone. There's the total amount of body fat. And then the total amount of this enzyme that's produced which then ultimately determines the total amount of estrogen. And again, it's that bell curve thing. And here's the weird part, especially in men and estrogen. The two sides of the bell curve look exactly the same. What I mean by that is, on the way, you're, 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 you know, the bell curve, kind of like, think of that, you know, Bugs Bunny lump on your head, you know, you get whacked with the mallet and you get that lump. The, 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 at the bottom here, on both sides, this is very bad, low libido, low sex drive, and it gets better, it's getting better, it's getting better, and it meets here, and amazing. But the problem is, is it's very hard to tell if you're on this side or this side. Do you see what I mean by that? So yeah. you could be here and think, oh, well, I have too much estrogen, you lower it, and you actually go back down the hill. Or the other side of the coin is you could be here and think, oh, I don't have enough estrogen, and you, and you go down this side of the hill. So it's a, a situation where not only do you need to have blood work and determine what the value is, but the real, real rub here is you need to have a history of blood work that's going to give you the indication that between these zones is where I'm at on the bell curve. And keep yourself at the, if you kind of like did a, a, a stratum of the bell curve, as long as you're in that top portion and not down in one of the troughs, you're going to be okay. So it's probably between, you know, 40 and 140 nanograms per deciliter is the crest of that. That's where you want to be. Mm -hmm. But it all comes down to that having that blood work. And it's not as easy as this is where people will really go wrong. And this is a whole conversation in and of itself. But especially these, um, you, you get on, please don't ever do this. But if you get on one of the uh, HRT kind of forums, there's this idea of, optimizing. I'm going to dial it in and I'm going to optimize. And I know exactly 187 milligrams of testosterone every nine and a half days. And I have exactly this value. Fuck are you fucking dumb? Oh my God. The key here that they forget is time is an ongoing fucking thing. And every single day is not yesterday. Every new day is a new day. And so that 
perfectly optimized value now run forward 30, 60, 90, 120, 9,000 days, probably not going to generate the same outcome because conditions elsewhere have changed. So you may find perfect libido at this dosage now, but three months from now you may not because something has changed. And here's the real comedy of it is why do you take drugs most of the time? I mean, you might take drugs medically just to stay healthy. Okay, fine. But why would you take drugs in sports? To make changes, to get bigger and stronger. You're literally taking it to change and then denying the possibility that you might change. Fuck me, is that stupid? <laughs> All the risk, minimal reward. That's God the, uh, damn that's it. the ideal. And, and, that's the goal. Oh, I, that's the problem. One day you're going to call me to do a podcast and you're going to find out that I had a stroke and I died in front of some little fucking chicken neck vegan fucking TRT asshole. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Completely off the rails. That's awesome. Um, no, no, that, 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 was, uh, that was great. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I want to be respectful of your time. That was, that was a really awesome conversation. I, I think that you shared a lot of really interesting insights and presented or kind of clarified things because I, I personally learned a lot. And so I know a lot of people will get a lot out of, uh, out of what you said. And especially, I appreciate you coming on because this topic is so taboo. People don't want to discuss it. And I don't know, I honestly think that the lack of information out there, like quality information about anabolics, about uh, PEDs in general, is kind of a big mistake because people are curious and they're going to do what they want to do anyways. You may as well inform them so they can make better decisions. And if they do decide to do it, then great. Then they'll be better informed. They can do it safer. And sometimes, you know, they might hear about whatever the consequences might be from a health standpoint or even from a career standpoint and say, you know what, that's actually not worth it for me, but at least they'll be better equipped to make those decisions on their own. So I really appreciate you taking the time um, and, and sharing your, your experience and your, your knowledge with, uh, with everyone on the, on the episode. It was super awesome. And I learned a ton. Like I said, I really uh, appreciate you inviting me on. I'd love to be here. I'm happy to do it as many more times as you could put up with me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, as, as you could tell, I'm, I'm pretty invested and pretty passionate about what I do for a living. So it's really not hard for me to talk about it way past your tolerance to hear about it. Yeah, for sure. So before we end off here, um, where can, where can people find you? Um, unfortunately, and I really do mean that all the basic social media outlets, um, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Instagram, uh, and my website are all exactly the same, which is team evil GSP.com. Well, the dot com is the website, but team evil GSP, uh, is Facebook, Instagram, everything's the same. So pretty easy to find. And then I hate to do the commercial horrorism, but I guess I should. Um, I have a members, a paid members website, 15 bucks a month. I have literally 120, 130 hours of live question and answer videos. I have about 300 hours of material, both by myself and others. You, you actually have contributed some material, uh, about 300 hours of material on performance enhancement, training, uh, you know, training optimization, mm -hmm. all, all of performance, 
in in a nutshell from nutrition to training to drugs all in one place 15 bucks a month um personally i think it's way underpriced way undervalued but i'm supposed to think that but anyway that's that's that easy enough to find is uh members.teamevilgsp.com awesome yeah, so all of that stuff is going to be linked below. Definitely go give him a follow on YouTube, IG, Facebook. Check out his website. There's so much great information that he shares, um, not just on anabolics, but on training, on nutrition, on a whole host of things. Broderick is, is super, super knowledgeable. Um, so, yeah, definitely make sure you go check him out. Again, Broderick, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's, it's been awesome. Of course. Thank you.